Welcome to the Catholic Cafe, where all that the Catholic Church believes and teaches is served fresh daily. So come on in and see what's on the menu today. Now, here's your host, Deacon Jeff Drzymski. That's right. Welcome to the Catholic Cafe. I'm Deacon Jeff, once again in the luxurious corner booth at the Catholic Cafe, and I'm joined by Tom Dorian. Hello, Deacon Jeff. How are you doing? I'm great. It's always good to be here with you. So when last we were here at the Catholic Cafe, we were talking with Father William Parham, and guess what? We've got Father William Parham back with us again. Think of the odds. Yeah, exactly. It's wonderful. Uh, it's almost, he looks just like, like he did last week. I've gotten quite a few questions since our last program. Well, I know you also uh, prepared. You watched all of the uh, Exorcist movies, the Omen movies, and the Seventh Sign. You watched several of these Hollywood movies. I haven't slept very well. So you're uh, you're scared? Absolutely. Well, he told us not to be scared last time, so I think we're okay with that aspect of things. But we do want to talk with Father Parham again on this topic. So, Father, we welcome you again to the luxurious corner booth. Well, thank you very much. And so I know this time you probably came hungry again, so we're going to have to set him up. I think um, Ellen, our waitress, mentioned that you liked decaf and fries. Is that correct? (laughs) No, uh, today I I need to be on a diet, so I'll take the cheese grits. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Wonderful. Uh, They serve good cheese grits here at the Catholic Cafe. Well, Father Param, I want to pick up where we left off last time. We were talking about, of course, apocalyptic literature, the book of Revelation specifically, the Catholic view on the apocalypse and what all that meant. And we started getting, and you did a wonderful job of explaining how we're to look at this book as a whole in terms of how the Catholic Church interprets this type of literature, and really the comforting, wonderful message of God's triumph that would have for each of us and and why that's an important piece of literature. Yes, yes. But one of the aspects I wanted to sort of focus on uh, today is really where we get into numbers. We get into all of the symbolism of the book of Revelation, and we, we start to see that left and right, the apocalypse of John is sending us numbers here and numbers there. I mean, uh, of all of the books of the Bible, in terms of numbers, numbers like 1,000, 12, 3, 7, and 6, those numbers appear more in the book of Revelation than any other book. So obviously numbers are important to this author. Oh, yeah, very much so, and there's a reason why. Well, tell us about that in terms of how we interpret these numbers. Do we mean all these, are these numbers to be taken literally, or are they figurative, are they symbolic? Tell us right, about here's that. Here's how it goes. Again, as I said last week, one of the problems we have is that you and I, live in the year uh, 2008, we, most of us, like today, uh, we came out of an English-speaking culture, out of a Christian culture, correct? But remember, all the first converts to Christianity in the first century, they didn't come from Tennessee or Texas, (laughs) right? Like us. Most of them are converts from Judaism, correct? Now, we're in the Bible like, Belt. I think some people are going to disagree with right. that. Well, anyway, well, I'm sorry, <laughs> but, uh, but look at like a man like St. Paul. St. Paul was no ordinary Pharisee. It says he studied under Rabbi Gamaliel. You know what that means? Tell Every us. Pharisee on the Sanhedrin was a scribe. If, and the only person who would, and the only type of people who studied under Rabbi Gamaliel were those who were being trained to be scribes. Maybe that's why St. Paul's the first one to start writing, correct? Mm-hmm. All right, so. Um, that makes sense. And so, as an example, you've got a whole group of converts who come out of the knowledge of the mystical life of the Old Testament. Now, here's an example. You see, there exists 
a Hebrew mysticism which interprets the Torah. Now, that's the Hebrew word for law. The Torah are the first five books of the Old Testament, you know, from Genesis to Deuteronomy. And they interpret the prophets in terms of the numerical value of the letters of each word. And it's part of what is called, they call it Kabbalah. And using such numerical values as a cryptogram, you know what a cryptogram is, oh, yeah. don't you? Okay, using, you used to do those as a kid. Using you... letters, you know, numbers for, for letters. And their name for this is called Gematria. Now, too, right now, the book of Revelation has a lot of that ancient Hebrew mystical use of numbers in it, and it's obvious. Now, Hebrew has a number value for every letter in the Hebrew alphabet. All right? Each letter represents a different number. And you can see it, in, and it's shown to you right at any standard grammar you buy. If you want to study Hebrew, it'll show the alphabet and show what the number is. You see, they didn't have Arabic numbers like we use, and not Roman numerals in which only a few letters were used as number symbols. No, each letter is a certain number. Now, here's an example. And in that mysticism, certain numbers meant things. For example, the number seven is always associated with something from God. Six days of creation, seventh day God rests. All right? So anything with the number seven represents something that is divine. And I've also I've also heard it means or it represents like a fullness or a completeness or it could be that or like Jesus will say how many times do I forgive my you know person says do I forgive seventy times or seven times seventy you right. see you just don't go out and count up okay how many times do I have a chance to be forgiven and start keeping a record up to 490 all right? yeah I've got to I've got to forgive He'll, Tom 490 times I'm up to 397 <laughs> so you see what I'm talking about the number would refer to an infinity because it's divine you can't put a limit on the divine correct indeed we see that all over scripture though in terms of the number 40 you know, 40 days in the desert, 40 days of fasting, 40, 40 uh, is, is, is a very important number. And, and usually, does it not mean sort of a, uh, anticipation of something coming or preparation? And the 40 days of Lent, as an example, of the 40 days of fast. Right. So we don't necessarily – now, the church doesn't teach that it didn't – it wasn't exactly 40 literal days, but it doesn't say that it was. And so really and so we need to understand – the number 40 is a spiritual number. It's the number of for spiritual renewal. And if now, these, these numbers are used so profusely in the book of Revelation, obviously then we have to look at the book of Revelation with, with that spiritual quality of those numbers in, in yes, place. Because you and I are Christians. Because we're Christians, we have a different mysticism, a different spirituality that's come to us from Jesus Christ, who fulfills the law and the prophets, correct? Like on the Mount of Transfiguration, Moses... And Eliah are with him on the mount. All right, now. So we have to almost go back in time to say, okay, what did St. Paul know? What did Peter and John, what did they, what was their understanding? Now, here's another example. If the number seven is associated with things that are divine, the number six deals with things that are 
human, less than divine. And again, if you looked at my question about whether seven meaning fullness or completion, number six is short of fullness and completion. Full short. And the higher the number gets, the worse it is. Hence, one of the great uh, uh, sources of continued controversy is that there is a person, right? a person, a human being, who is going to be the scourge of God. And it says, it's in Revelation chapter 13, verse 18, the famous, it is the number and it is 666. So let's go ahead and do something. You think we've got time to go through what this means? I think so. I think it's important for us to understand, you know, when you're talking about uh, uh, how we view this apocalyptic literature and truly understanding the concept of how numbers are, are used, uh, I think it's important for us to talk about that. And I think I know a lot of our listeners have seen all those movies, Tom and I included, mm-hmm. and we know that there's going to be this guy, this Antichrist, and he's going to have this uh, 666 tattoo well, on his just head. Said, you just said the magic moment. The word Antichrist appears nowhere in the book of Revelation. It's only in the letters of St. John. And it's the spirit of Antichrist. And the spirit of the Antichrist is someone who denies the incarnation, that the word became flesh. The book of Revelation does not talk about the, I mean, the word Antichrist is not there. I think that's an example it of how... It speaks of the beast that um, that does cause a lot of real hardship to people. But again, I think that's part of the, the problem where we as a modern culture have started to lump things together and paint pictures mm-hmm. with broad brushstrokes. And all of a sudden, now we have this concept of this Antichrist. We'll call it, and, you know, a good question is, is the Antichrist... Is the beast, is Satan, is that all the same? Uh, No, it's not. And in fact, there's no mystery who is 666. It is well known. It was known in the second century. It's been known, and every uh, scripture scholar and commentator within the Catholic Church will tell you the same thing that I'll be telling you here in a moment. Yeah, in fact, I think we're going to tell those folks after our break. This is going to be like the big cliffhanger. If you want oh, to find no. out who 666 is, who it refers to, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm sure you're wondering if it's the guy that lives down the street that keeps throwing <laughs> rocks at your dog, uh, or it might be some great political leader you know, in modern times, uh, or it, was it somebody in the past? And we're going to find that out. Right, because after all, remember, there are two beasts. There's the first beast, and then it's the second beast, who's like the other beast, But, oh, he performs great signs, and he deceives people, and he's able to perform in the sight of the first beast. We're going to talk more about this beastly topic when we come back after our break, but I do want to take the opportunity to remind everyone that we do have a wonderful website, www.thecatholiccafe.com, and uh, golly, it's getting lots of hits. There's a lot of folks out there checking us out, and we appreciate that. Uh, and we encourage you to come back because the material is constantly 
uh, updated because we keep recording new shows and we post those shows so that you can listen to them. You have a portable player of some sort. You can uh, you can listen to them on the go. Uh, you can also sign up for podcasting. Uh, and we also have some wonderful links on the website if you want to do more research about the Catholic Church, what it teaches. We've got some great links there to help you on that uh, journey. Uh, and also, we also invite you to contact me in particular, Deacon Jeff at thecatholiccafe.com. So with that, Tom and I and Father Perrin will be back in just one moment. I'm Vester Zemski, and this is another great moment in church history. It is the understatement of the millennia to say that the very early church proved to be difficult and trying times for believers in the Lord Jesus. Not only were they considered outcast by the Jews of their day, but Rome had obviously set her sights on the fledgling church as well. In fact, even while many of the original twelve apostles were still alive, countless Christians were being martyred by the Roman authorities for their newfound faith in Christ and his church. One of the worst enemies of the early church was Emperor Nero. The year 64 AD proved to be the height of his persecutions of Christians. This is a year that Rome burned, and two-thirds of the eternal city lay in ruins. It is said that Nero might have set the fires intentionally so that he could rebuild the city as he saw fit, or that he simply wanted to create a reason to gain support from the Roman citizens for his persecution of the church. But regardless of why the fires were started, Nero needed a scapegoat, and he blamed the early Christians. He soon began a bloody rampage of persecution, torture, and death, the likes of which had never been seen in Rome. Many non-Christian ancient historians have documented the unusually gruesome deaths that were perpetrated on these early faithful. Many were crucified, many dressed in animal skins and thrown to wild beasts for entertainment, and tradition tells us that some were even used as human torches to light the streets of Rome. Regardless of the means of death, the church fondly remembers each of these first martyrs. Called the proto-martyrs of Rome, their steadfast love of Christ, even in the face of a cruel death, would stand as a shining example for Christians for nearly 2,000 years. While Nero's goal was to supplant the Christian movement and stifle the growth of the church, his actions ended up backfiring. The proto-martyrs showed that they were ready and willing to share in the suffering, death, and ultimate resurrection of Jesus. This served only to inspire and motivate the persecuted Christians. In fact, the more the church was persecuted, the more it grew. No one knows the exact number of martyrs who paid the ultimate price for their faith at this time in history, but their gift of witness has made a lasting impact on the people of God. The Catholic Church has dedicated a site in Vatican City in their honor, the Piazza of the Proto-Martyrs. Their feast day, celebrated by the Church Universal, is June 30th. I'm Bess Trzymski, and this is another great moment in church history. Welcome back to the Catholic Cafe. Here's Deacon Jeff. And welcome back to the Catholic Cafe. I'm Deacon Jeff here with Tom Dorian and our very intelligent guest, Father William Parham. 
Uh, Father, you've obviously read a lot of books. You didn't just make this stuff up. Well, I, I read a few, right? <laughs> I imagine. I'd love to see your library sometime. But let's pick up where we left off. And, and I know that the, the first thing that needs to come out of your mouth now is, who is 666? Right. I'm going to start on chapter 13, or actually, and, and, on, and verse 16. Now, notice this. The beast forced, no, this isn't Antichrist, correct? Right. It says, the beast mm-hmm. forced all the people, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to be given a stamped image on their right hands or their foreheads. So that no one could buy or sell except one who had the stamped image of the beast's name or the number that stood for the name. Now, first of all, here's an example from talking about a reference in terms of Old Testament. If you have ever seen an Orthodox Jew at prayer, and if you read the book of Deuteronomy, you'll understand why. They wear what is known as a phylactery. They have a leather band that has what looks like a, a wooden box on the band. And in that box is a piece of parchment that would have a passage from the, from the Torah in it. This is one on the forehead, correct? On the forehead. And the other, and you have two, you have one on the forehead and on the left hand, right, the left hand, you have this leather strap that you, t- you do this three times a day when you pray. And again, it has this box on it that has a piece of scripture in it. Now, do you see its left hand? That's the hand where you, I notice you're married, Deacon Jeff. Where's your ring? On my left. Left hand. Symbol of the covenant, of a marriage covenant, correct? It comes from the book of Deuteronomy where it will tell you. And in and, 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 and Numbers, you'll see it again where it says, And you will let my covenant, my word, my commandments will be on your forehead and on your left hand. That's why Orthodox, Jesus prayed that way. Jesus had phylacteries. Remember, he talks about Pharisees with wider and wider phylacteries. All right, that's what it is. Hmm. But you notice the beast, it's the opposite. It's right. not covenant with God, but another covenant, maybe a secular covenant. I don't know. But now it's it parodies, you see, it parodies true faith. Now, what's the number? It says wisdom is needed here. Oh, wow. Notice he tells you going out the gate. John, when he writes this, he is telling you point blank that he is using veiled language. Well, obviously, when he says wisdom is needed here, this is where he's saying, hey, guys, listen up. Listen. There's For more. those of you who know what I'm getting ready to say or talk about, you need to now you need to turn yes. your antennas up and, and, and listen to this closely. Yeah, wisdom is needed here. One who understands can calculate the number of the beast, for it is a number that stands for a person. His number is 666. Now, let's look at a few things. Please note, the beast is a man. It's not a machine, computer. It's not an office system. I've seen everything <laughs> like that once before. And that the name is known to the author of the book. He knows the name, correct? But the point is, what's he doing? The author admits he is using veiled language in this case, as he does elsewhere. Well, why? To tease us 19 centuries later? It worked. 
Or is there a more serious reason? I'm going to tell you something. Number one, remember persecution. First of all, politics. The book of Revelation appears during the persecution of the Roman Emperor Domitian. He died in the year 96 AD. He reigned from 81 to 96. And its geographical area, remember the book of Revelation comes to us from Ephesus. These visions are on Patmos. Where is this printed? Where is it propagated from? Ephesus. Just like the Gospel of John or the letters of John, this is coming to you from Ephesus, ancient capital of the Roman province of Asia. And by the way, Ephesus was dominated by emperor worship. And it was the first city to build a temple to an emperor. So John writes Revelation in Ephesus. It's, it's a hotbed of emperor worship, and Domitian is martyring Christians left and right. I guess John had to be very careful about, about what he wrote and how he wrote it, didn't he? Prudence requires veiled language when speaking of the imperial dynasty in a hostile manner. Now, note, the Emperor Domitian launched the first worldwide persecution of Christianity. Now, some of you would say, well, wait a minute, what about Nero? Nero had a persecution, but it was located in Rome and its environs. The Emperor Domitian launched the first worldwide persecution of Christianity. And not only that, he had a secret police trying to find out descendants of King David to have them killed too. He didn't want any messiahs being born in the empire. Unfortunately, he was a, a century bit almost late. <laughs> this man was really the scourge. Could anybody like this guy? Do you know that even the pagans, they, they didn't like Nero much either. In fact, you know what they called the Emperor Domitian? In Latin, they called the Emperor Domitian Nero Redivivus. Nero, come back to life. <laughs> well, obviously they thought even less of Nero. So what uh, clues does Revelation give us next about 666? It tells you this convoluted, the book of Revelation has this convoluted chronology. It talks about there are seven of these kings. Then the eighth, then now there's suddenly there's an eighth one, but he's just like the fifth. What is going on here? Well, it's very simple if you just know the history of the emperors of Rome. Here we go. Revelation, book chapter 17, 8 to 11, interprets itself and the list of emperors as the seven heads of the beast. And then it refers to an eighth who is from the seven. Are you ready? Here we go. First emperor and the one who was emperor of Judea, right? Who was king over all of Judea? First one. Augustus. Number two, Tiberius. Caligula. The fourth one, Claudius. Then you have Nero. Nero is fifth. Uh, then he commits suicide in 68 AD. So who is sixth? Vespasian goes to Rome. He takes over. So there is number six. Number seven, Vespasian dies in 79 AD. His son Titus becomes emperor in 79. And the last one, the eighth, is Domitian from 81 AD to 96. And by the way, he thought he was a god. And not only that, he even called himself king of kings and lord of lords. Hmm. He was murdered by his wife. <laughs> a warning she to all, couldn't those, take it anymore. all those married men out there. 
Yeah. But remember, he launched this persecution worldwide of the church. So let's go back to Revelation chapter 17 and, and read verses 10 and 11 again. Revelation tells us of the seven kings, five of whom have fallen, one is, the other has not yet come, and when he comes he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to perdition. So Emperor Nero was the fifth. He's one of the first seven emperors, or as Revelation says, he belongs to the seven. But Revelation tells us the beast is the eighth. It says it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven. Now, you said that the eighth was Domitian, but that Domitian was also known lovingly by his people as Nero come back to life. So I guess John is telling us here, albeit in a very veiled way, that Nero is the beast. But what about the number 666? How do they fit into all this? 666 is the, adds up to the numbers in Hebrew of the name, as they pronounced it, Neron Caesar, Nero Caesar. And there you have it. You can just take the Hebrew letters and just look at the alphabet, add them up, and there's 666. So John is indeed telling his people, the people of God, that Nero is indeed the beast, 666. Nero is the one who put Peter and Paul to death. Nero sent an army to destroy Jerusalem. So there you have it, folks, straight from a true biblical scholar. The number of the beast, 666, is referring to Nero, Emperor of Rome. Nero Caesar. Father Param, we thank you so much for uh, for being with us today. And uh, I think it's really going to be helpful for us to know that this 666 is not necessarily and is not to be interpreted as, you know, some antichrist that's going to come. It's got a tattoo on his head like the movies show us who's mm-hmm. going to come and, and uh, rule over the earth and that we're all going to bow down to him. Uh, you know, that this was really... John writing to the people of his time about the terrible persecutions being perpetrated on the people of God. Not in the negative, but as you said before, Father, about the book of Revelation, it's a story of triumph. Christ will be triumphant, something that we can all take joy and comfort in. Right. So, again, this is not a scary Hollywood story, but a love story, actually. (laughs) And, of course, it also is very, I guess, uh, telling that the number 666 is sort of as you were were alluding to the use of numbers before, it's three times uh, less than perfection. Perfection is 777. 666 is humanity at its worst. (laughs) Exactly right. That's wonderful. Well, we have so much more to cover. I know, Tom, you had some questions that you never got to ask. That's okay. I'm sure uh, Father... Parent would love to come back. I'll come back. I surely will. Right. Sure well, Coming I know we, we, would, we would welcome you anytime. And uh, so what we will do is we'll just, on that note, we'll leave it. Um, I do want to uh, close in prayer, as we always do. Heavenly Father, we ask you to bless us, to be with us, to keep us and protect us from all that the world would throw at us and all that the evil one would tempt us with. We know that your ultimate victory as it's told in the book of Revelation, is something that we can have great faith and belief in. And we look forward to that day. We ask you to give us the grace that we need to persevere in this world so that we might come to live with you for eternity in the next. We ask all this through your Son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. 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 Thanks for listening to The Catholic Cafe. If you'd like to contact Deacon Jeff, send an email to Deacon Jeff at thecatholiccafe.com 
The Catholic Cafe is brought to you by the Order of Malta Federal Association and is broadcast with ecclesial permission from J. Terry Stive, Bishop of Memphis in Tennessee. Join us again at the Catholic Cafe. There's always room for one more at our table.